The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series with Oded Gilad and Dina Freeman. Episode 23, From Global Oligarchy to Global Democracy. When we try to imagine the possible future of democracy, one thing that can make us somewhat hopeful is to think of how, during the history of democracy, and despite many weaknesses and setbacks, we can also observe a slow process of evolution, in which democratic systems slowly became more just and more inclusive. One famous historical landmark in this regard is the medieval Magna Carta, the Great Charter, where the King of England was forced by the English barons to share power and authority with them. Initially, it was with a council of only 25 of them, and surely it didn't include any of the peasants that did all the hard work. But later, over centuries, that council was broadened into a parliament that gradually gave representation to all the men of England and then also to the women, manifesting the democratic principle that those who are governed should have power over those who govern them. Now, to be fair, most of that evolution of democracy within England, as in several other European countries, happened while they were busy at the same time conquering the rest of the world. Imperialism was surely not a European invention, but when the European empires rose, they possessed the technology and the mindset to go global. And so we can see a tension between two contradicting trends. On the domestic scale, within England or France, we see the evolution and growth of an inclusive democracy, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, while on the global level, at the same time, those people become members of what can only be understood as a global ruling class that profits from the exploitation of the new subjects in the colonies, otherwise known as the rest of the world. From the perspective of the masses of people in those colonies, of course, this was not a democracy but an oligarchy, a rule of the few over the many. And so that system, that global order that emerged, had a huge internal contradiction built into it between the rise of democracy on the local level, while at the same time forming an oligarchy on the global level. And that tension between the justice of the first and the injustice of the second could have been resolved in three ways, two of which have already been tried in history. The first one was for the Europeans to tell themselves that the people that they were ruling over were not really people, but some inferior beings that are incapable to take part in democracy what we know as racism. But as scientific enlightenment and simple human solidarity increasingly exposed the huge falsehood and cruelty of this belief, racism was largely abandoned for the sake of an updated, repackaged version of it that said that it was the culture rather than the biology of the people in the colonies that made them unfit to be included in a shared democracy of civilized people. The people in the colonies themselves, of course, didn't find these arguments convincing, and eventually even the Europeans came to realize that culture, like race, couldn't justify the profound injustice of their oligarchic rule over the non-Europeans. This realization then, mainly during the 20th century, led to the second great attempt to resolve the tension between the democratic standards that the Europeans applied to themselves and their oligarchic rule over the rest of the world. In that second attempt, the European empires were formally dismantled, supposedly to allow the people of the colonies to govern themselves freely. And so, 
Soon after the second half of the 20th century, the whole of humanity and the whole of the earth have been divided into 200 separate political units, with borders that almost everywhere overlapped those that were drawn by the colonial powers, and not by coincidence. Now this new arrangement that we still have with us today was supposed to finally solve the contradiction that as the Europeans no longer directly govern the world, ostensibly they are no longer applying the double standards of internal democracy and external oligarchy. And the people of the world are supposedly finally free to shape their own future as they like. But surprise, surprise, more than 70 years after the formal independence of the colonies, what do we find? That the basic unjust pattern of global exploitation didn't really change. Before the so-called independence, many people in the colonies had to work long hours in the plantations, the mines and the sweatshops to produce things that were shipped to the happy markets of Europe. And now, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still working in the plantations, the mines and the sweatshops to produce things that are shipped mainly to the happy markets of the European countries. This is also not a coincidence, of course. The only thing that has changed in the new arrangement is that while formerly Europeans directly governed the colonies, now that hard and dirty work of undemocratic rule was outsourced to the local governments, made of non-Europeans that were allowed to enjoy a part of the loot in return for their good services. So the European system of global oligarchy didn't really end with the official end of colonialism and imperialism it just got a little bit more sophisticated. And so, the new setting didn't really resolve the tension between local democracy and global oligarchy. Which brings us to the third possible solution, the one that hasn't been tried yet, even though it's the most obvious one. And that is the idea to expand the boundaries of democracy so that they would truly include the whole of humanity. To integrate our political systems into a union one that will overlap the borders of our planet and our humanity and our economic system. That is what democracy should have evolved into already a long time ago, and it's a crying shame that we still don't have it. But as humanity is increasingly facing more and more global problems and crises that nation-states and the so-called international system cannot solve, the imperative to take democracy to the global level becomes ever more pressing and ever clearer to more and more people. So what will it be like? What does it mean to apply democracy at the global level? Well, happily, the basic principles are pristinely simple and obvious. The two basic components of democracy, which are the demos and the kratos, the people on the one hand and the system of government on the other, should be recognized globally. On the demos side, this will mean that every human will be recognized as a world citizen with the right to vote not only on the local city or state levels, but also on the federal global level in global elections. On the Kratos side, it will mean that the classic division of power between the legislative, the executive and the judicial branches of government will also be applied on the global federal level. The definition of their different capacities, responsibilities and limitations would be clearly outlined in the Federal World Constitution. And of course, beside this horizontal division of power into three branches, there would also be a vertical division and devolution of power within each of them. 
This would mean that the central authority, such as the federal court or the federal government, should have only a subsidiary function, performing only those tasks which cannot be performed at a lower or more local levels. These are the simple institutional outlines of global democracy. We know them well from the national, domestic context, and the only task is to implement them globally. Over the 20th century, we established and created almost 200 modern states that didn't exist before. But we created them on the wrong scale as nation-states, with the misguided concept of total sovereignty, independence rather than interdependence. So it is possible, if enough of us want it, to establish just one more federal state, but this time on the right scale for humanity, which is the global one. It's also reassuring to remember how this idea of a world federation is entirely not new. Throughout history, some of the most prominent political thinkers, prophets, philosophers and activists have raised this obvious vision and called for it. But again and again, narrow-mindedness of the ruling classes and their internal divisions and mistrust have managed until now to thwart and derail all the attempts to make this vision a reality. And instead, we ended up with institutions that only have the remote semblance of those that we should have in a global democracy. Early in the 20th century, peace activists pushed for the creation of a global court, where countries could come to settle their disputes instead of using violence and war. And ostensibly, they did it. What we know today as the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, had been created in 1907 as an arbitration court, and to this day, it is still active and sitting in the Peace Palace in The Hague. But guess what? It didn't manage to avert humanity from falling into the First World War, or the Second World War, or the Cold War, or any of the wars and genocides that happened after its establishment. Why did it fail so colossally? Because it lacked two things. The first is democratic power, and the second is democratic legitimacy. What does this mean? So first, as an international institution rather than a supranational institution, this so-called court doesn't have any independent power not only to enforce its verdicts, but even to summon the parties to discussion. Indeed, if a judicial branch is not backed up by a parallel executive branch, like a federal police force that could enforce its verdicts, it cannot penetrate the sovereignty of national governments and it remains up to them if they give a damn about what it mumbles about. The second and equally important reason for why the ICJ is a failure has to do with democratic legitimacy. You see, in any real court, the most basic instrument in the hand of the judges is a collection of laws that are written mainly not by the court and not by the two sides of a dispute that can be very uneven in their power, but by the legislative branch, the parliament, that represents the entire population. That basic element is missing in the toolbox of the ICJ because the people of the world have no parliament that they can vote to and be voted to. The term international law, that we hear way too often, is a fictitious combination of three words that entirely contradict each other. While a true and just rule of law has to be anchored in the will of the people, from below as to speak, at the same time, it has to be applied equally on all of them from above. If the law that applies to nations is only between them, as in international rather than supra and above all of them, then the strong among them rather than many 
can decide which rules to obey. And that is not a law, that is a sad joke on all of us. And of course, the treaties and agreements that supposedly comprise international law are not even agreed by nations, but by the governments that control them. Few countries are internally democratic, and therefore their governments can rightly say that they represent their respective nations. But we know that a vast number of countries are not democratic, and so a much more accurate term to use to refer to their dealings is intergovernmental and not international. People who understand this might like to tell themselves that this is only an aspirational term, that it expresses our hope and our normative view that governments should represent the will of their peoples or nations democratically. But in reality, this language just works to legitimize and sugarcoat the huge injustice of the global oligarchic system that we live in. Indeed, just as the word race has been used in the past to justify the division of humanity to superiors and inferiors, so the belief in the existence of nations is being used to serve a very similar purpose. But even then, the moral contradiction between the values of local democracy and the reality of global oligarchy makes even the upper classes of the world uncomfortable. Seeing the failures of the so-called International Court of Justice to stop the horrendous First World War made many at the time realize that just an adjudicating branch is not enough and that we need something like a parliament to represent the people of the world and legislate the laws in a more democratic way. And so soon after that war, in 1919, the winning government established the League of Nations that despite its name, of course, was an intergovernmental rather than an international organization. But anyway, even the vague possibility that such a body could come to have authority over and above the national governments was enough to make the government of the USA to just not join and stay out. And how did that work? Not so amazingly. When in the 30s the Italian government dared to conquer Ethiopia, just like stronger European countries conquered other parts of the world, the governments of the League decided to sanction Italy, so Italy just left the League as did Nazi Germany when it decided the time was right to establish its very own empire, which got us to the Second World War, whose horror were far greater. And so, this time, the voices calling for establishing a real and democratic world federation were far more numerous and clear. A large movement sprang up in many countries saying that this time we must get it right and get the whole package, a federal world parliament and court and government and constitution of humanity, by humanity and for humanity. But the five governments that won the war, of the United States of America, of the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, France and China, had a very different idea in mind. In the new intergovernmental organization that they have created, which they called the United Nations, they said the General Assembly of Member Governments, in the stead of a world parliament, the ICJ again as the world court, and the United Nations Security Council is something that has only the remote semblance of an executive world government. And to make sure that this body will never become really supra or above themselves, they gave themselves a permanent seat in the Security Council and the right to veto down any of its resolutions. How did that work? Well, this time all the governments of the world have agreed to join to this organization. The main reason for that is that this new body sanctified the power of those who sit in those governments. 
making them high-ranking members in the global oligarchic order. The charter of the organization, that served as a substitute for a world constitution, doesn't require in any way that the governments will represent the people that they govern, the so-called nations that are so-called united in the organization. Advocates of the UN like to say that it played a role in keeping the world from falling into a third world war, but this is, at best, just wishful thinking. The single most important factor that kept the Cold War cold was the assurance of both the USA and the USSR that both will be thoroughly destroyed by one another if they start attacking each other. Other than that, the UN didn't prevent plenty of proxy and other wars and genocides. No peace can be attributed to it, and if there ever was any, it resembles the peace between mafia groups that divide the neighborhoods of a city between them and agree to not encroach on each other's territory. The end of the Cold War finally enabled a renewed interest in the idea and the possibility of global democracy. By the end of the 1990s, a new international court was established also in The Hague called the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. That court aimed to penetrate the shield of sovereignty of governments and put criminal responsibility on individual leaders who partake in the most atrocious crimes against humanity, such as genocide. But again, having good and noble goals is not the same as having the right tools and means to achieve those goals. Like the other intergovernmental organizations, this court remains weak and ineffective because it lacks democratic power and democratic legitimacy. Just like the ICJ, without a world executive or government to back up its verdicts, and without a world legislative or parliament to write the laws that represent the will of humanity, the new court is too lame and frail to challenge the existing system of global oligarchy. It is high time that we, people who care for justice and for humanity, would rise and speak truth to power. We need to rethink and help others rethink the stories that we have all been told about our history and our present and about what is possible or impossible in the future. This is how we will get what we need, which is just enough people that would say enough is enough and not put up any longer with the substitutes of global democracy, but demand the full package, a world citizenship, a world constitution, and federal world parliament and court and government. The whole thing, a truly democratic and inclusive system that will do away with the injustice of global oligarchy. Nothing less. So come on board and speak up. Find the good-hearted and like-minded people around you and around the world and link up with them. Take initiative and help us organize to tell the whole world about what you have learned. Together we can make it. And the best time is now. Thank you. The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series is also available as videos on YouTube and other platforms. If you found the ideas in this episode interesting, please share it.